composing the mind-body the background resonance of the sound of silence like a focus of just getting in touch recognizing that uh, as this expansiveness and unlimited method but it's it's also one pointed <coughs> so that you it's a like a paradox <coughs> because like in with any kind of technique of meditation we tend to you know we we pick up ideas or instructions from others uh, and we tend to feel we have to do this and then do that so it's uh, the mind itself is easily conditioned and programmed by the ideas we we have and opinions views that we form about practice or what we think the scriptures say or the teacher says or the meditation master says so they <coughs> you know people ask what should I do when I first start meditating should I go to the breath or body or you know the, the doubts arise what should I do how long should I do anapanasati or body sweeping or whatever you know the how many hours should I sit practicing sitting meditation or how long how many how long should I take to do the walking meditation so we you know the part of us wants information and instruction and definition for practice just to recognize that there's nothing wrong with that I'm not criticizing that but just pointing it out that the uh, the conditioned mind uh, is very much one that that forms through ideas and programs, schedules, conventions, wanting certainty. Uh, how long should I sit? Should I practice mindfulness of the breath first, or do samatha first and then vipassana? <coughs> So pointing this out is that's the, the the way we we pick up even the sublime teachings of the Buddha or the wise instructions of a meditation teacher. And so this uh, sense of intuitive awareness, uh, the way I experience that is through this this broader spectrum, this this uh, background of awareness uh, rather than and as which brings up any kind of compulsive tendencies I might have or have acquired through meditation or uh, doubts about practice or myself or whatever and anything that the conditioned mind forms or creates in the present so it has perspective on that it is not kind of judging it as I shouldn't have any views or opinions but it's putting them in the context to see them as conditions rather than as 
the kind of starting point of practice. At first, maybe, you know, when we, when people don't, usually beginners don't, haven't enough awareness or not, you know, need more definition to something to hold on to for a while, to to start with or to begin with. So meditation techniques are valuable in, in that way. But then the, the uh, as you, but then the point is the developing this awareness of the here and now, the way it is. So, just explaining what happens to me in in this practice is with this uh, sound of silence as a background. Then I feel you know I've developed this to the point where the uh, it's very simple, very easy, very natural. It's not. I don't have to apply any effort, you know, like try to find it because it's with me and just a member of uh, a matter of recognizing it and being with it or remembering it. So, like just the word silence immediately, and even when I hear the word silence or silent, the sound of silence immediately. I mean, it's just, it's just uh, there, you know. I might be caught in some kind of emotional state or mental uh, proliferation, but then just hearing the word silence, uh, the, the, this uh, sound of silence, uh, I, I recognize immediately. And this is a, like way of training, or Bhutto, the mantra Bhutto. Then from that spectrum of, of oneness, then, then, uh, then things come up in the cause I'm aware of the, maybe the breath will arrive, I notice the breath or the body. There's, there's a, one can, can uh, notice what, what is really happening, like it, what kind of state of mind, ever feeling restless or anxious about anything or dull or tired, whatever, uh, you know, the, the mental state might be the dominant experience of this, this moment, the kind of unresolved uh, emotional mood of this moment, or the breath, or the, then the, the body might be asking for attention, does that you feel this maybe tensions or stresses in the body. And the body is, uh, you know, gets habituated uh, through our lives. We, you know, through the traumas and stresses and tensions that we experience through, you know, from childhood up to the present. They have their, 
effect on the on the on the body, the way we we hold ourselves, the the habits we've formed. They're like like traumas, emotional traumas or or shocks that we have in, in just being part of the this realm, the human realm on this planet. If uh, you know, when you notice what happens when you're shocked, when you feel a sudden sense of something happens and it shocks you, uh, this is what I've noticed. And I don't feel anything. It's just like everything kind of stops for that moment. <coughs> and of course, that has its effect on the on the body also. And this is where mindfulness is the way to deal with it because uh, as we trust in the awareness then the, the kind of physical habits that we've developed through our lives become more conscious and when we allow them to be conscious then we we can uh, not reinforce habits or release uh, uh, kind of blockages, energetic blockages or shocks. We can carry carry uh, trauma and shock, you know, even quite unconscious just through the, the bodily, the uh, way the body uh, gets kind of stuck in a certain way through those kind of experiences. And they, they needn't be anything all that dramatic, like, a, you know, a, a, some some sharks are quite, through great kind of experience, you know, very heavy experiences. But also there's, there's a number of things in life that just tend to upset or shock us. And we have, and the stiff upper lip attitude that is common here uh, is, is kind of noble, uh, quality to it, and let's get on with it. Let's not wallow in this or and get on with life. Is a kind of uh, attitude that is certainly, you know, uh, in many ways quite a noble one. <coughs> but in that process, sometimes we don't we don't really resolve things in our lives very well, and uh, we we just learn how to kind of grin and bear it, stiff upper lip and get on with our lives. Where with meditation, <coughs> pawana, we're actually using our conscious experience for resolution of conditioned experience. Letting the, the uh, experiences that impinge on us, you know, into full consciousness and, and without, you know, taking a, just get on with life and ignoring the effect, but allowing the effect to be conscious till it naturally resolves itself. It's not me trying to resolve my problems or that in, in terms of a self-view that I've got to come to grips with my uh, traumas and imperfections because that that tends to keep the illusion of a kind of permanent self uh, uh, keeps it going. We tend to operate from that as, as our 
modus operandi. So instead of operating from that illusion, we're letting that illusion become conscious. And I've noticed that, that like bodily awareness as we bring attention more to uh, allowing the body to speak for itself, bring it into consciousness, then the body actually has its, you know, its own way of resolving things. It's, it's not through my ego uh, kind of forcing its will on, on the body, making it just ignoring its signals or denying its reality, but allowing this physical formation to be what it is. And, and it, of course, is a condition in nature. So it has, you know, it's a, has a natural intelligence that knows how to deal with, with the uh, slings and arrows of our fortune if we allow it to. Stiff upper lip attitudes can be it was very mental, you know, so <coughs> we we just you know, we deny our body the its right to to uh be conscious by just uh, suppressing or distracting ourselves from its uh, from the way it is, the way the body feels at this moment. If you really do a lot of, of awareness of physical sensation of bodily uh, awareness of the body you know it's, it's the uh, kind of magic of it all is that one can bring into consciousness just a point on the body the tip of the nose or the top of the head or the little toe on your right foot or from the kind of one little bit to the uh, full body experience so in the posture of sitting, you know, the, what is the full body experience? And just that perception of full body, total body experience is, is not a kind of, we're not trying to find the body as some kind of experience in the present, but opening uh, consciousness to allow this body in this posture to be what it is. It's like embracing this, the embracing the physical formation, the whole physical formation. Remember when I started doing the, the kind of sensation sweeping practice in the body, it always kind of amazed me in a way how I could just think, you know, one part of my body, uh, you know, like forefinger on the right hand, and then it's conscious just by just by bringing the, even the word. Uh, the concept into consciousness, then it seems that the, the 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 actual that part becomes conscious. Oh, that's quite magical in a way, because 
before that, I didn't didn't get the connection. You know, the the intellect was was quite seemed quite separate from the actual physical and sensational realities of this body. So like the the oneness, the the infinity of awareness, unlimitedness as a concept, then when you try to define it, of course you're trying to define the undefinable or limit the unlimited. So this is like with intuition, it's 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 an intuitive intelligence we're depending on or we're using rather than uh a, d- a defining one, an intellectual one. So on the intellectual level, we feel, might feel very baffled by all this. By some people, find the, the kind of when I talk about intuition or reflection or that the way I do, they, they feel just baffled by it because they can't quite, you know, figure it out. And and because there's so much kind of wanting definition through naming, through conceiving, through defining experience. Or just the reflection of the way it is. What way is it then? It's the way it is. There has to be some way, you know, so the intellect can actually, you know, be trying to figure out what, what it actually means. What it, when I say the way it is, what does that merely mean? And of course, what can I say? You know, it's a, this is where words fail, and we have to depend on the mindfulness, sati sampajanya. which doesn't define. You know, it isn't. It isn't finding anything and then defining it and then, and and objectifying it as as a part, but the the awareness. Satisampachanya allows us to um, to be one with the totality, the oneness, the reality of oneness. Where oneness includes everything, you know. So it's not. It's how can you define everything, uh, you know, as a through the intellect. But if you develop, cultivate this awareness, then the, then the condition realm is, is included in that, and then it, it can speak for itself. It is what it is, you know, so the, the, the mood you're in, uh, you know, is, is, uh, is received in consciousness rather than judged according to uh, value system we might have of good and bad, right and wrong. So like like the the Lungpacha once when I I went to uh, see Buddha Dasa years ago and and he asked me 
what, what I practiced. This is before he really knew much about Ajahn Chah. Well, we, you know, and I wasn't very good at explaining, so I said, we, well, we, we keep strict Vinaya, very strong on the Vinaya, and, uh, and we practice uh, Bhutana Sati, you know, Puto. So then he, then he, then Buddhadasa says, well, you know, if you're mindful, you, you know, you, you don't need the Vinaya, that's, uh, and so I thought, hmm, that's interesting, because, uh, when when Vinaya is given such importance, you know, then uh, from from the monastic training, it t- uh, tends to uh, you know be uh, conditioned sine qua non for for our lives. It'll be strict and pure in the Vinaya. And it seems you know one doesn't even question that. One just assumes that. At least I did. So then Buddhadasa. <coughs> said this statement which rather shocked me because I had very, very fully committed to keeping the Vinaya in a very strict way. So when I went back to Wat Bapong, I told Ajahn Chah what Buddhadasa said and, and uh, Ajahn Chah's response was true but not right, right but not true. <coughs> it was very interesting. <laughs> He didn't deny it, say Buddhadasa was wrong. But that, just that reflection, true but not right, right but not true, is a kind of koan, isn't it? Or a paradox. I mean, it's, a, it's an enigma, a conundrum. The, the, the intellect wants to <coughs> say if it's right, then it, rightness is truth, or the truth is right. We, we have this way the intellect works, isn't it? We, we want, we have the, this dualistic function that tends to divide and, and define and specify and discriminate. And so good is, from this level, is opposed to, to bad. And right and true are almost synonymous. So how could something be right but not true, or true but not right? And of course this, uh, trying to figure it out, is uh, on that level of, of uh, thinking, was impossible. But then in the, because Ajahn Chah's emphasis was on, so much on the awareness and reflection, the vipassana practices, sati-sampachanya, then I began to, to, to see this, this, how I could, you know, this, the, the dilemma I created through trying to figure out this, this enigmatic statement. Because I was expecting Ajahn Chah to say, Buddha Dasa is wrong, and I'm right. And I was kind of interpreting Buddha Dasa as saying, you don't have to bother with the Vinaya, just be mindful, which he wasn't, you know, he wasn't saying that. But that's how 
my logical mind tended to to receive it and interpret what he said. Now in the in the awareness then right and wrong can coexist at the same moment true and false or any enigma or koan or puzzle conundrum can you know any kind of formation whatsoever you know any kind of intellectual or emotional conditioning that arises is then we have perspective on it. We can see it in terms of what it is, the way it is. And so in, in, in the conventions that we have, the, the conventional world of Vinaya is then put in a context, you know, isn't just clung to as an end in itself or a, or a strong identity or dismissed as uh, not worth bothering with. I'm, j- I'm just practicing mindfulness and Buddhadasa says that's all that's necessary and so that's all I'm going to do is, is a kind of my ego, my personality, you know, grasping some kind of interpretation and operating from that. So I find this this way of you know of of using of of developing a kind of wonderful and interesting ability to uh, within the context of this frail form this mortal coil this sensitive formation and the way it's conditioned the way it reacts and and interprets things, you know, and tends to grasp ideas or teachings. So, so uh, explore this in your in your own, you know, experience. The 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 commitment to thought to the intellectual uh, discriminatory function which is you know it, it, it's, it's a divisive function it divides it just language itself its function is to discriminate and define and judge to know right from wrong good from bad But then, in with awareness, then the the intellectual function is no longer the the uh, attachment and putting uh, that conditioning, that dualistic function, into perspective. You know, it is the way it is. It is you know the feelings of right, wrong, good, bad. They are what they are, and in that context of dhamma, they all conditions are impermanent and not self. 
Now, with uh, Sati Sampatanya, you know, one takes into account the the uh, the conventional world that we live in. We're not ignoring it or dismissing it, but we're recognizing that living within the convention, say, of monastic convention, is uh, you know, it's it's to be recognize that this is the, on the conventional uh, realities of our lives, these are the limitations that we've chosen on behavior. And, and that limitation is, is a, a, a traditional form, the Vinaya, you know, is usually held to be uh, that discipline that the Buddha himself uh, created. So it's, it's that, you know, it comes from, it has a lineage in, the, in this tradition. So it's, um, but it's recognized also that it is a convention. And how restriction on behavior and speech how that, how we hold that restriction? Do we meditate? Do we, are we aware of it, or do we just merely uh, grasp rules, restraints, views, and opinions, and operate from that? <coughs> now, in in my own experience, my tendency, uh, the habit tendencies of my life were to any kind of moral uh, values, principles, ideals, uh, this was because these were so strongly uh, conditioned into me from childhood, you know, of right and wrong, good and bad, what's moral and immoral and so, so forth, that these were very much, you know, inculcated uh, through the family and the culture of my life, so that, 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 that one did tend to operate from the, this kind of conditioning process. So I, even how I held the Vinaya in, in a Thai monastery could get very puritanical, you know, because the, the, the kind of values of my background were quite you know, black and white. So they were like, you know, it had to be like this or it was wrong. You had to do this or you were wrong. Or you had to, you know, there's all these, these uh, compulsions, these imperatives that made you right or wrong, or a good monk or a bad monk. Now that, then that, say, just operating from that alone, one, one desperately held to trying to become a good monk and be uh, kind of accepted and praised for being strict and pure in the Vinaya. And there's a kind of pride that develops in the sense of, and a kind of uh, sense of, uh, being better than monks that aren't very strict. I remember going through stages of looking down on monks who I thought were not, 
were not very good. In, the, in Thailand, you've got the what they call the Wat Ban monks and the Wat Wat Ba monks, which mean the the kind of village or town monks, that do, that, and the, and then the forest monks. And the forest tradition usually much more uh, emphasizes the Vinaya in the training in Vinaya, much more strict. And oftentimes the Wat Ban, or the town monks, are, you know, they they'll they'll have money and things like this, and and these were anathema for a, for a forest monk holding money was just, you know, you were just a bad monk if you did that, or, you know, the 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 funny one was drinking Ovaltine in the evening. This was totally condemned in the Wat Pa Pong tradition. So if you wanted to really uh, vilify some monk, you said, you know, he drinks Ovaltine in the evening, and then, oh, he's one of those. Huh? <laughs> so my Upachaya was a Wat Ban monk. He's also a meditator, but... When I go visit him in Nong Kai, then he'd o- offer me uh, Ovaltine in the evening, and <laughs> and I kind of run, no, I don't, I don't drink Ovaltine in the evening. <laughs> and then he he told me uh, that um, well, the Mahani Kai Mahateras decided that Ovaltine was was allowable in the evening, so it was wasn't just breaking a rule, but it was kind of an agreed. Uh, by the Sangha to, that this was be uh, an allowable substance to use in the, in the uh, afternoon and evening. And I never thought of it like that. I thought they were just breaking the rules. And so I was quite used to be critical of my Upachani. He's just breaking the rules because I saw the rule that that, that was wrong and you shouldn't do it. It's interesting that that uh, just how you know the the way I did hold it because it was considered wrong by in the tradi- in the tradition that I trained in. But how that very sense of uh, some monk who drinks Ovaltine in the evening as being a bad monk—I mean, the whole, the way the mind works—it will take one little little thing and then and then. Uh, label that monk accordingly. Like, it's, you know, even if he's good in everything else, just because he drinks Ovaltine in the evening means he's, he's a bad monk. The kind of, the way that <coughs> the mind can just operate from a bias or a prejudice or a position. So the Emphasis on sati sampachanya. I could ke- I could put this into perspective. The way I held right and wrong, good monk, bad monk, what ban monk, what ba monk, and so forth. The, the kind and the kind of sense of my own that somehow I'm I'm a step above those that 
because I don't carry money, then I'm somehow better than the ones that do. And the, the, the kind of arrogance that can come from that kind of uh, grasping. Contemplating that, the uh, sense of me being a better monk than somebody else, you know, by putting that, that perception into consciousness, by really making it where, like, like really deliberately thinking, you know, I'm a better Wat Bon monks. We're strict and we're pure in Vinaya, and those Wat Bon monks are, are not. They're shameless monks. Just by thinking, deliberately thinking that, so that it, I'm conscious of thinking in this way. And, and then reflecting on the result of thinking uh, this. Is this a peaceful state? Is this liberation? To be, to hold to this view that I'm somehow better or purer than somebody else. And just by reflecting on, on, just by deliberately grasping this perception in a very deliberate, intentional way, but observing it, you know, I realized that that uh, that is not a peaceful mental state. That is not a liberating way to to operate. You know, to think that I'm better than somebody else. If you really look at when I really look at that, it's not a peaceful state to cultivate. It makes me arrogant and look down on somebody else, and that's not peaceful. It's not liberating to be better, to hold to the view that I'm purer or better than any than anyone else. And this is a way of exploring that, e- even our own arrogance or assumptions about, uh, and and the way we can look down on others, or you know, within our own tradition, you know, feel critical, or that our way is better than. Than the other traditions, just like the around the Mahayana Hinayana perceptions in Buddhism, there's you know you on you know Mahayana have their particular hang-ups about being the kind of greater vehicle and. Theravada have their kind of view that we're the original, the, you know, the, the pure teaching of the Buddha, uncorrupted by time, the original teaching. The, and so these, these views can be grasped, you know, that somehow the original teaching is what we can trust and we practice according to what the Buddha really taught and not, not any of that other stuff that was added later, like we assume they did in Mahayana. Now just that kind of mental proliferation, you know, is that a peaceful mental state? You know, to see, to to look down and feel somehow we're somehow better than, than say, Mahayana. You know, is that is that what I want to live my life with that assumption operating from that position of of identity and grasping of uh, Theravada? 
And when I really look at it in terms of experience, you know, a feeling of, you know, of the kind of taking on the prejudices that one develops through this tradition against the others. Now, I don't, that's not peaceful, that's not liberating to be caught in that delusion. Now, you have to test this out for yourself. You know, what, what is liberation then? What is the way of liberation? And this is an intuition. It's, it's a direct knowing. You know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a position that one takes through conventional, through the conventions that we're using. Even binding ourselves to the conventions in this way is not, it will not be liberating. It will just make us into strict Vinaya monks of the Theravada forest tradition and, uh, and then the, the result of that grasping of that convention puts us, our relationships with others is, is, is then uh, seen from that perspective. What we invest in, you know, become and, and identify with is usually, you know, a bias of some sort, which is divisive, divides us from the rest. So, awakening to that, the suffering that's caused through that division, you know, the dukkha, that's the first noble truth. Now, in the emptiness, of the, you know, the, the, the ground zero or this point that includes everything. You know, I, then it gives me, you know, I find this, this is liberating because it doesn't take sides, it includes, you know, so it isn't, uh, it isn't uh, letting the convention take me over but being able to use the conventions Mindfully, for awareness, the the convention that I've chosen then is put in that perspective. It, it's not kind of I'm a Theravada monk because Theravada is better than Mahayana or something like that. It's not if if that's what I believe, then through investigation I can see through that that assumption that what I'm doing is somehow better than what somebody else is doing. Or the party line, isn't it, of a, any any group of people? You know, the 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 biases, the party line of of the Theravada Thai forest tradition, or the party line of any Mahayana tradition. So the the point of liberation is in this awareness. You don't get liberated by grasping a convention. Grasping a convention, no matter how good it is, or sacred, or noble, or right it might be, the problem is always the ignorance, the avicca, and the grasping through, grasping of conventions through avicca. Ignorance of dhamma. 
Now in uh, Theravada, sometimes you get, you know, like like some people are in our community here attracted to Kuan Yin and images like that. that and, and then the Orthodox Theravadans say, oh, that is, that's not really Buddhism and that is not our tradition. That's Mahayana. And then it's kind of like a condemnation of it. If it's not included in the, in the, in the limits of our tradition, then we shouldn't have anything to do with it, is the kind of logic that comes from that way of thinking, that way of grasping. So, in, in, by reflecting on this, you know, like, images, what are they? You know, you have, you know, how do they affect consciousness? How does this Buddha image here uh, affect experience right now? <coughs> now, from the, from the very uh, sense of you know, the authority of the Buddha and the kind of patriarchal position of him being, you know, very big and golden and sitting up on a high pedestal as a human form. And then, then I found on a personal level I used to feel intimidated by it. And the sense of, you know, the Buddha kind of looking at me in a critical way. Are you really pure enough? Are you really, have you been practicing hard enough? Because this is a, this is a, a kind of way that I always viewed authority or teachers. Uh, even Ajahn Chah, I always, you know, I could feel this intimidation of, that can he see, see, see through me? Does he, you know, can he know what I'm, that I'm not really as good as I try to appear, and uh, and all that, and 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 the sense of myself on a personal level is, uh, you know, is 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 a critical one. Where I never, you know, on the level of my personality, judging myself, it tends to be always uh, very critical in kind of, uh, you know, pointing out that you're not good enough, and that's the habit pattern of, of that I've developed as a through the uh, cultural conditioning, social conditioning. So then uh, so then the um, I noticed this that that how I I could look at this this image here, this Buddha Rupa here as a, a kind of one who's who's looking at me and, and seeing through me and criticizing me and kind of judging me in a way, or then I change it who to seeing this this image is always blessing me and they got right hand up like this a peaceful gesture just changing the way I looked at it you know from from seeing it as a kind of authoritarian righteous figure who who's who's judging me or criticizing me in some way or seeing it in terms of a blessing 
You know, the Buddha is always blessing me rather than criticizing me. Now that's just by changing the, the attitude. Because then in terms of insight into Dhamma, the Buddha isn't a critic. You know, he's not, not criticizing me, but this is always a blessing. This awareness, this puto is, is, is incorporating all that. It isn't, it's not concerned with, with my purity and my mood of, the uh, mood of the moment or my thoughts or the way I am as a person. Is this kind of continuous, ongoing blessedness, blessing, receiving, opening to, to this formation? And that's the way, uh, you know, from that perspective, then just by reflecting in that way, then, they, then this bhuto or this awareness is what I trust in. Because the, the image itself is merely an icon, a kind of uh, symbol for that. That Buddha image there is merely a symbol for this bhuto, this awareness, sati sampachanya, sati panya. So, in when 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 I see when I contemplate the image itself, it's 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 uh, it's always like the the word silence or bhuto. It brings me into this awareness. This the real bhuto, the real Buddha is this. Which is a blessing. It's not a, it's not a, a kind of judge. And a critic. Symbols like uh, Kuan Yin, uh, uh, you know, these are individual. How these affects and and their value isn't can't be kind of defined by somebody else. You know, how do they affect consciousness? Do they help you toward awareness? Or do you just attach to some some kind of concept of some kind of female deity that, that in the universe and, and that uh, you devote yourself to? Or is it is using the image of Kuan Yin helpful towards awareness? So Kuan Yin always has this this quality, like being more female in its in its form of of not being so critical or judgmental. Like patriarchal authority tends to always convey to us this kind of this 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 judgment, you know, you have misbehaved and you're going to be punished. I'm going to punish you for misbehaving. And that, that's how, at least I tend to, to see the, uh, the male uh, patriarchal authority is a very kind of judgmental force. And then they say the the more kind of non-judgmental force in, say, Kuan Yin is more like the, the female that, or the mother that uh, loves her children no matter how naughty or horrible they are. 
you know, that that it's a a, a a mother, you know, that in in stereotype usually loves her children, no matter what they do or how horrible they might look or deformed or whatever, you know. It's, like this unquestioning love it tends to be more associated in people's minds with the female form. So, in, in this, this way, bringing into consciousness what we're actually doing, uh, how to, uh, you know, how these various uh, icons affect our, our uh, conscious experience of the moment. Now, if, if you've got this bias that Kuan Yin somehow is not allowed because it's not Theravada, then, then if, if that's my mindset, and so and as soon as I see a figure of Kuan Yin, I think, that's not Theravada, shouldn't be here. <laughs> Immediate reaction, isn't it? <clears throat> it's not allowed because it's not Theravada. The, that is uh, because of the viewpoint that that some that that's Mahayana and and Mahayana is not allowed. So that's uh, that's a sign of the grasping of the convention. then those that aren't totally committed and limited to Theravada might grasp, uh, well, you know, really I'm Mahayana at heart. I'm, even though I'm a Theravada and monk or not, I'm really at heart a Mahayana, you know, because it's the greater vehicle and it has, this, has these beautiful images and techniques and bodhisattva practices and so forth. And, and so then we we tend to kind of put up with the with the uh, hardline Theravadins, and uh, but uh, in 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 our own practice we we are identified with Mahayana. Well, these are these are I'm just pointing to extreme uh, possibilities for for grasping, because this awareness is neither. Theravada or Hin, uh, Hinayana or Mahayana. And these, are, these are projections from the human mind, aren't they? These are concepts, ideas, conventions. 